0: Our text today is Matthew chapter 14 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Hear God's holy word. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, He commanded it to be given to her, so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that the spirit that inspired Matthew to record these events, uh, the spirit that was sent by you and your son to fill your church, that same spirit now would lead us into truth, that you would guard us from every error, that you would deliver us from every distraction, and that we might hear and obey what you have told us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. People of God, guilt over unconfessed sin will utterly wreck your mind and your body and your spirit. Unconfessed sin that you have attempted to mask with any number of false remedies, your own righteousness, excuses, your own efforts to distract or to numb your guilt or to numb your pain with any number of addictions, sin that you have tried to cover up on your own will cause you to become paranoid, anxious, depressed, hopeless, and will absolutely remove all productivity from your life. That is a major theme in the story of Macbeth, one of William Shakespeare's most famous plays. Macbeth is a Scottish nobleman. He is consumed with ambition, and as if to pour fuel on the fire, he gets this prophecy from some witches that he will become king. And so he, along with his cruel and conniving wife, Lady Macbeth, Uh, plots to kill the king to seize his throne. And though he gets away with it, he kills the king, the, the assassination is blamed on somebody else, and Macbeth is crowned, this brings him no joy whatsoever. In fact, he is almost immediately overcome with shame and guilt and paranoia. He hallucinates, he sees ghosts, he can't sleep. And even though He got what he was after. He struggles to find any purpose or any meaning in life. It's from Macbeth that you get that famous quote, and I'm paraphrasing, life is but a walking shadow. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's what life is for Macbeth. It means nothing, it's all emptiness, even though he got what he was looking for. Because of his guilt, he has no joy in it. And so what Shakespeare displays so skillfully Here is this madness that is born out of a guilty conscience. Lady Macbeth also, she she has nightmares about the blood on her hands, the stain that she desperately tries to wash off, erasing her shame, but she cannot. The madness of Macbeth is the madness that comes from committing a great sin and having no covering for it no repentance, no confession, no restitution, there is no absolution, and so they're wallowing in the shame and the guilt. Uh, In Matthew's Gospel, we meet someone who has a lot in common with Macbeth, even I wonder how much of of this person, uh, Shakespeare, based his character of Macbeth on. Uh, Herod Antipas uh, has ambitions, he takes what he wants, Herod kills someone who gets in his way. He's emotionally fragile, he thinks he sees ghosts, and he has a conniving wife who participates in his wickedness, just like (coughs) Macbeth. There's a lot of information that we get about Herod in just a few short verses. This is not Herod the Great, whom we met earlier in Matthew's Gospel. Back in Matthew chapter two, we met uh, Herod the Great who was met by the wise men who called for the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. This Herod is that Herod's son. This is Herod Antipas, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Usually whenever a Herod shows up in the scriptures, there, something bad is about to happen. There's an unjust death, uh, someone innocent is killed, So Herod the Great, the first one we meet, kills the baby boys in Bethlehem in an effort to kill Jesus. Herod Antipas here is the one who kills John the Baptist and before whom Jesus will stand before his crucifixion. In Acts 12, there's another Herod, Herod Agrippa, who kills James. Remember who these Herods are. They are not the rightful kings of Judea. They are a dynasty of Edomites That means they're descendants of Esau. They are friends of the Caesars. They've been placed over this region by the Roman Senate. So they don't have any real commitment to God's law or to the covenant. They're simply put there by the Romans to keep the peace, which mostly meant appeasing the populace wherever they could and then cracking down on anybody who makes trouble. Matthew introduces this Herod as Herod the Tetrarch, which sounds like a really important title, right? Oh, he's Herod the Tetrarch. Oh, that sounds like a big deal. But in fact, it can actually be a little jab from Matthew. It means ruler of the fourth part or ruler of a fourth part. See, Herod the Great, this is not Herod the Great. This is Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Great divided his territory up among his sons before his death. So this Herod rules only over a tiny region. He may think he's a king with all this power, but the reality is he is a tin pot tyrant over a tiny slice of the Roman Empire. And throughout this account, Matthew is going to contrast this Herod with the true king, Jesus, who rules over the cosmos. So Herod uh, rules over this puny kingdom of fear and death, and Jesus is the glorious king of life and rest. And we'll see this contrast throughout Matthew chapter 14. Herod enters the story now because he has heard reports of everything that Jesus has been doing to this point. And after hearing the reports, Herod's terrified response is, I know who that is. I I know who that, that sounds like. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist has come back from the grave. Why would he think that? Why, why is this weighing on his mind? Well, we get a little flashback. Matthew gives us a flashback in verse three. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So sometime before this point in the narrative, Herod had John the Baptist arrested and thrown in the dungeon for publicly, courageously rebuking Herod and his very public adultery. Herod had married his brother's wife, Herodias. And i try to keep them separate. Herod's the guy, Herodias is the woman. I know it sounds so cute that it's Herod and Herodias, but it's not that cute at all. There's nothing cute about this. Now, we might assume that because Herod was the ruler, and uh, Herodias you know, was the woman that, that Herod might have been the predator or Herod might have been this manipulator, but there's some evidence that Herodias herself was complicit in the arrangement, and she wanted to marry Herod. She was married to Herod's brother, Philip, who was nobody and going nowhere. He didn't have any authority to speak of, and she saw in Herod Antipas a pathway to becoming a queen. And we're gonna see her conniving and her manipulation later in the story. Uh, She's the one who takes the greater offense at John's rebuke. So in this whole account, we may ask who seduced who? Now, Now Herod Antipas is not off the hook at all. He was already married, so he had to put away his own wife without any cause and steal his brother's wife which under Jewish law was a prohibited relationship. If your brother's still living, you can't take his wife. You can't marry your brother's wife. So Herod broke two of God's laws, and this stirred John to speak up. And all John says is, the quote that we get is, it is not lawful for you to have her. This is important. What John says is simply, this is not lawful. God hates what you are doing. What you are doing is going to bring God's judgment on you and upon this people. What you're doing is polluting the land. You're destroying yourself, you've destroyed your wife, you're destroying your family, and you're destroying all of us because you're doing what God has prohibited. Uh, He doesn't say, Herod, I despise you. He doesn't try to assassinate Herod. Uh, There are a whole manner of things that he could do, and it's pretty, honestly, pretty benign what John says, right? It is not lawful for you to have her. So despite uh, John's very direct, just saying what God says, Herod lays hands on John, binds him and puts him in prison. You see, men like Herod don't want to rid themselves of their sin. They just want to get rid of anybody who makes them feel guilty for their sin. Instead of taking violence on his sin, he takes violence to people who make him feel bad and who hurt his feelings. It's misdirected. Uh, The problem is not out there, the problem is in here, the problem that he needs to resolve. So Matthew writes that Herod does this for the sake of Herodias. He desires to put John to death to make his woman happy. But at the same time, he fears the multitudes. He fears the people because they count John as a prophet. So here is poor Herod. I know you feel sorry for him. You're really sympathizing with him here. But he's not a principled man at all. He is a passive man. He's caught between the temper tantrums of both Herodias and the people. He doesn't fear God enough to obey God, but he does fear this woman and he does fear the mob. And all the time he's racked with guilt Yet, we see later he's open to the possibility that John was in fact a true prophet. Herod has hung around with Jewish scribes and priests long enough to know something about the Old Testament. He knows from the Old Testament that if you cut down a tree, a branch will grow from the stump. And so is that, is that what's happened? We cut down John the Baptist, but here he is again. He also has enough theology to believe in resurrection, apparently, because he believes that John has come back from the grave. He's a better theologian than the Sadducees. He says, John has come back. And yet, here is a man covered in weakness and shame with no integrity, no repentance, only fear. Well, what happens? Herodias hatches a plot to get John executed. On Herod's birthday, she has her daughter dance for Herod at his party. Now, if you're keeping score, who is this girl? This girl is not only his niece, but is also his stepdaughter. And and she's dancing in a way that we can only assume to be suggestively, obscenely, indecently. And Herod watches her like the creep, that he is, he's so taken by lust for his niece that he says, I'll give you whatever you ask for. Well, she's already been prompted by her mother to know that he's probably gonna say something like this and that the reward that she asks for is going to be the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Why? It's because uh, her mother is so stirred up in embarrassment and shame for what, what John said. And so even at this point, before he grants this, Herod still looks around the room. He looks around at the people who are sitting with him. Did you catch that in verse 9? In verse uh, the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So again, he's moved not by principle, but he's moved by the fear of man. John is executed and the head of the prophet is served on a plate which exposes uh, Herod completely as the cannibal king. He is the king who devours God's people. He is clearly not the Lord's anointed. He is clearly not the true king of Israel. Matthew purposely uh, moves from there to contrast this cannibal king, Herod, with the shepherd king, Jesus, who gives life, who gives uh, true bread. And what we're gonna find in this next section, Jesus is also a ruler. Jesus is also surrounded with a lot of voices who would manipulate him or co-opt his power. But Jesus follows the law of his father. And Jesus always uses his power in a principled way. Jesus never abuses his power. Jesus is not insecure. Uh, He's not worried about what people might think of him. He's a king, Jesus is, who has no shame because he's never sinned, and he has no guilt, which means you don't have any handles to grab him by. He, He doesn't kill like Herod. He gives nourishment and healing, and in this way, he truly rules over the nation. So pick up in verse 13. When Jesus heard it, that's heard about the death of John, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So after Jesus heard what had happened to John, he's grieved. Um, Not only has he lost his cousin, not only is he grieving over the state of his people scattered like sheep without a shepherd, they've got this tyrant cannibal king Herod over them, which is a terrible state, but also there's the reality Jesus sees about what is going to happen to him? You see, the very same script is about to be followed with Jesus. John was, in verse three, um, Herod laid hold of John, bound him, and put him in prison, and then he's before Herod. Well, the very same thing is going to happen to Jesus. Uh, They're gonna lay hold of him, they're gonna bind him, they're gonna put him in prison, and he's gonna stand before Herod. Jesus knows what's coming, and he knows the nearness of his arrest And his death. So Jesus goes to a deserted place out in the wilderness, somewhere to get away, but the people follow him there. And he's moved with compassion for their needs. He heals them and feeds them out there in the wilderness. I know when I am sorrowful or I'm consumed by thinking about something weighty or I just, I have this heaviness The last thing I want is to add someone else's sorrows to mine or to try to, in that condition, try to meet somebody else's needs when I'm struggling to meet my own. And it's difficult to resist resentment when you think these people are so insensitive and so selfish, wanting a piece of me when when I can't even take care of myself. You've felt that way. I know we all do, but Jesus isn't like that at all. Jesus doesn't find these people to be a nuisance at all. He could get back on the boat and go somewhere else and and find somewhere else to be alone, but he doesn't. He moves immediately from taking care of his own needs to taking care of theirs. What a wonderful savior. And in fact, in our our grief and in our sorrow, we need to follow his example. We, We all have to learn how to do this. And actually, it's the best thing for you when you're in the middle of grief and sorrow to find a way to pour yourself out for somebody else, to go help somebody else and to serve them. And you're both served and ministered to by the Holy Spirit together. Um, And that's what Jesus does. They're out there, Jesus is healing and he's teaching and he's ministering to these people way out late in the evening. It's past supper time, they're far away from town and the disciples say, okay, 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 okay. This is enough, enough already. Jesus, tell them to go home. Tell them to go get supper. It's time to to end the day. It's time to be done. And Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. See, he's training his men, and he's training these people to know that Jesus is the source of life. You don't need to go somewhere else. Don't send them somewhere else. Life and nourishment and everything you need is right here with me and my people. Jesus says, send them away? What are you guys thinking? We're not gonna send them away. And then uh, his disciples point to the very practical matter that they don't have any food. (laughs) I mean, you can wish all you want and we can feed these people. We've got five little loaves and two fish. We just got a couple of biscuits and a couple of sardines and that's not gonna feed all these people. They're about five thousand men out there, not counting women and children. There could have been easily 20,000 people if you count women and children. There's just no way, Lord. There's no way we're going to do this. And Jesus said, what do you got? Bring it here. Bring it here to me. Bring me what you have. When Mark writes this account, um, Mark says, Jesus commanded the multitudes to sit down in ranks on the green grass. Now, Matthew tells us he told them to sit down on the grass. Mark adds this detail. He told them to sit down in ranks on the green grass. There's so many layers of, of meaning to this action. Just as Israel was camped in the wilderness around the tabernacle, camped like an army with banners, camped in rows and ranks like an army in an orderly way, just as Israel was fed in the wilderness with miraculous manna bred from heaven, so now we've got a new Israel. Got a new Israel camped around Jesus at the center, and they are once again fed with miraculous bread in the wilderness. There's also the Psalm 23 imagery here, right? They're sitting down on the green grass beside the waters, which he's about to calm before the chapter is over with. He's preparing a table before them in the presence of their enemies. The threat of Herod is right there at the beginning of this chapter. In the chapter before, we have the Pharisees plotting, but yet they sit down and they eat and they rejoice around their king. Like Israel was camped around the tabernacle, so they are are in ranks camped around Jesus with Him at the center. There's a careful liturgical order to what Jesus does here. He takes the bread, He blesses it, He breaks it, and He gives it to His disciples who give it to the people. He's gonna do the same thing on on the night he's betrayed. He's gonna do the same thing with the communion bread. So he's giving them bread here, yes, but more than that, he's giving them himself. He is the one who's going to be broken. He's the one that you need to feed on to be nourished. And there's way more then enough bread to go around. It's not like they get just a little bite here just to get them back to town, just to take the edge off. You know, if you're super hungry, you say, I'm starving, I'm starving. We got anything to eat in this house. And you got a cracker and a put a little cheese on it. And that's just enough, just enough to get you to supper before you die of starvation. That's, that's not what they get. They eat and they are filled. They eat and they eat and they eat until they can't take another bite. And then they take up 12 baskets of Leftovers. Uh, there's enough food here for all twelve tribes of Israel, if they'll have it, if they'll take it. Um, when John writes this account in his gospel, John the apostle, uh, he says after this miracle, the people were going to come and take Jesus by force and make him king, which which means that everybody sees what's going on here. Jesus is everything that Herod isn't. Why wouldn't you want him to be king? Of course you do. He's our man. But Jesus isn't ready for the coronation yet. So he gets up into the boat now and he does cross to the other side of the sea. In fact, he makes the people, he makes his people get in the boat and then Jesus will follow them. Verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, He was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, "O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. We've studied and observed many times that the, uh, Israelites, the Jews, were a land-based people. They were not a seafaring people. And so for them, the waters are ominous and threatening and turbulent. And so often in prophetic literature, things that happen on the land have to do with Israel. Things that have to do with the sea are symbolic of what's going on with the Gentile nations. And of course, in the Old Testament, Yahweh always has authority over both. And there are so many times in the Old Testament where Yahweh is said to walk on the sea. Yahweh walks on the waters. I'm just gonna give you a couple examples or um, uh, references. In Job 9:8, he treads on the waves of the sea. In Psalm 77, uh, beginning in 19, the water saw you, O God, the water saw you, They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters. So even though the storms and the winds and the lightning and the whirlwind is all blowing and the sea is foaming and raging, Yahweh makes his path through the sea. It doesn't stop him. He's in control over all creation, and over all nations. Um, The prophet Habakkuk talks about Yahweh riding his horses and his chariots over both land and sea. So this is not a new thing. Suddenly, all of a sudden, we see Jesus on the sea, and we say, we've never seen anything like this before. No, we know that Uh, Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and now he's doing what his father does, which is ride over the seas, or to walk over the seas. His pathway is in the seas. So Jesus demonstrates he has the authority not only over the physical waters, but also the raging, foaming, turbulent nations that they represent. And just as Jesus can calm the seas with his voice and can walk over them, so can he pacify the nations with his voice and ride over the nations and rule over them as a triumphant king. And so in this account, the apostles are in a boat being tossed around by the raging sea. They're crying out in fear. And Jesus comes just strolling up on the waters, you know, like like you do. He comes strolling up over the waters and he says, cheer up guys. It's me, don't be afraid. And Peter jumps up and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come on, join me. And Peter makes it a short way out of the boat, but when he sees how boisterous the wind is, he's afraid and starts to sink, and the Lord saves him. Now, the order of events is very important here. Peter doesn't begin to sink and then becomes frightened. That's not what happens. He is frightened and then begins to sink. You see that? With Jesus right there on the water with him, Peter is in the safest place in the cosmos, right? He is, he's in the safest place in the, with, in the world. And yet, right there in the presence of Jesus, it's the fear that puts him in peril. It's not the peril that causes him to fear. Peter is always criticized here for being impulsive, but I don't think he is impulsive. He asks the Lord, he says, if, if it is you, you need to command me to come to you. Um, Peter doesn't just jump out there and try to, try to walk on the water himself. He realizes that if he's going to go meet the Lord on the water, that the Lord has to command him to do it, that this has to be a, a miraculous initiative of the Lord, not his own will or his initiative is going to help him walk on the water. And so Peter doesn't just jump out of the boat and hope for the best. No, uh, Peter's faith is strong. When he says, I can do that too, Lord, if you command me to, he knows that the Lord can do anything. And so Peter's faith is strong until it isn't. He starts off in faith and then he wavers in doubt. And we can sympathize with this 100%. We also begin to doubt when we are scared. Like Herod, we become frightened of the opinions of other people more than we fear God. Like Peter, we become afraid when we're not looking at the Lord, but we look around at the circumstances, we look around at the events, when Jesus is right there, but we're not paying attention to him or his power or his sovereignty or his presence. And it's that fear that finds this stuff more daunting and fearful than him that causes us to sink. It unravels our faith and we we fall. We sink and we despair and we cry out. And then he, he picks us up and he saves us. He gets us out of the water. These three episodes are back to back to back, deliberately given in this order to paint a clear picture that is just as relevant for us today as it was for these disciples. Right now, today, tyrants are ruling by fear because they are ruled by their own fears. They're guilty and they know it. Deep down, they know that they have not sought any covering for their sin. And without that covering, they're going to have to face a holy God in judgment. They know it. Romans chapter one says, they know this. Lecherous, murderous, Unprincipled, child abusing tyrants like Herod are not to be feared because our shepherd, our king, feeds his people in the wilderness. He heals their diseases. He walks calmly over the waters through the storm. And Jesus calls his people to come pick up his bread and help him distribute it. You come out here and you can walk on the water just like I do if you keep your eyes on me. Don't be afraid. Don't be like the wicked tyrants. Your sins, child of God, have been covered. Your guilt has been washed away. Don't be like them, and don't be afraid of them. We need this encouragement so badly today because of how quickly our situation is becoming similar to John's situation. John was condemned, he was thrown in prison, and he was executed for hate speech, right? He publicly condemned sexual sin. he said out loud that 's against god 's law. God hates that. Um, that destroys you. that destroys and pollutes the land and and his his saying that out loud was treated as if it were a violent act. You execute murderers you you execute." Uh, revolutionaries. You, you, you're, you're executing violent uh, people. You don't you don't execute people who say things, and yet he was treated as if this were a violent act. What did he do to deserve this? Well, he hurt Herod's feelings, and he hurt Herodias's feelings. He hurt the feelings of everyone who thought that the best thing to do was just to ignore what was going on up at the palace, or at least, at the very least, just to accept them and to maybe love them and and just put up with it, John embarrassed Herodias and he shamed her and he made her look unacceptable by saying, That's against God's law. See, this is the same kind of conflict that you and your children have to put up with today because you can't speak openly about sexual sin. If you say adultery or fornication or homosexuality or transsexualism are sin, if you just say what God says about it, don't add anything else to it, just say what God says about it, you are accused of being hateful. If you point out the sheer stupidity, the folly, the utter folly of all this, and you say it out loud, you, just like John, are guilty of a violent crime. Uh, You are injuring people by your words. It's literally genocide. It's literally genocide. You are the one causing grief You're the one causing the shame and the anxiety by your bigotry. That's what they want you to believe. Why are they suffering so acutely? And they are suffering. I don't disagree with that for a minute. Why are they suffering emotionally and mentally? Why do they have so many mental health and emotional problems? It's because they, like Herod, are guilty before a righteous God and they know it. That is the source of their grief. But they don't want to deal with that. It's easier to blame you. And rather than kill their sin, they're going to try to kill you for saying the wrong things and for refusing to say the right things. You are the enemy. Their sin is not the enemy. You are the enemy for refusing to enter into their demented fantasies, for refusing to play along with their fetishes, for refusing to be a supporting background character in the movie that's in their head. These people are not going to be happy until they've ruined everything. And I want to make a distinction because the Bible makes a distinction. There are very weak people who have been deceived by the lies of Satan and they're swept up in it and they are covered in shame and guilt and, and, and they are weak. And there are also, on the other side, active Deceivers. Not everyone is a crusader, but there are crusaders. There are people in positions of power with a very clear agenda. And they're not not hiding any of their cards. They're not pulling any punches. They are not going to be happy until you can't shop for groceries, and you can't buy clothes, and you can't go to a ball game, and you can't go to the courthouse, and you can't drive around town without having a face full of satanic, sodomy celebration being shoved in your face all the time, and they, they hope to destroy every institution. They've, they've been very successful with the universities, they have the marketplace, they have the government, they are, they're making ground all the time in the institution of the church, and they're working on the family. They want to turn everything to garbage because they're like their father, the devil. They hate God, they hate truth, they hate goodness, they hate beauty. I want to drag everything down and make it as terrible and disgusting and shameful as their sin. And they're not going to be happy. They're not going to rest until they have control of your mind and your tongue unless they can get you to say what they want you to say, to speak the lies right after them and for you to bow at the knee of the altar of sodomy and child sacrifice. And so you're going to be put in a position more and more, you're going to be put in a position to say, no, actually, I'm not going to go along with that. I'm not supporting that. I am not giving my money to that. I am not participating in that. I am not going to act like that is good or normal or okay. In fact, I oppose it. No, I'm not gonna put my pronouns on everything. Are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. You have to be prepared for this. Because anywhere they have an opportunity and even a hint of authority, they're going to work to shut you down and shut your mouth because they wanna shut down the gospel. And they want to shut down God's law. What this whole section of Matthew's gospel teaches us is that when you are put in those positions, you don't have any reason to be afraid. Zero reason to be afraid. Do not be intimidated. Herod was intimidated by everyone. Herod was intimidated by John, by Herodias, by the mob. Don't be like him. Don't be afraid. Take comfort because the shepherd is with you. The same shepherd feeds you. He makes you lie down in greed pastures. He leads you beside the still waters. The waters are calm because he calmed them. He walks over them. The shepherd is with you, even in the tumultuous raging storm. So don't be afraid to call sin, sin. Don't be afraid to call insanity, insanity, to laugh at folly, to say madness is madness. Psalm 2 says that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh shall hold them in Derision. If, if God laughs, we can laugh at the utter nonsense because this is not serious. They're not serious people and this is not to be taken seriously at all. And so in this environment, the highest priority for us and for our children is to be fed by the shepherd and not by Herod. Herod's kingdom is a kingdom built on deception and lies and that makes it a kingdom with an expiration date. The kingdom of the shepherd king is an eternal kingdom built on reality. And so this is not a phase of history where we put it on cruise control and we just hope it all works out. It's not a phase of history where we take it easier or back off, but that we intensify our commitment to God's word, his church, come to the shepherd to be fed by him, to be healed by him, to hear his voice and to tune out, drown out, switch off the influence of Herod and his kingdom and everybody who acts like him. All he has to serve you is the head of the prophets. That's the only thing he's got in his pantry is the head of the prophets on a platter. That's the only thing he can feed you. The Lord Jesus, the shepherd king, can feed you with the real bread that nourishes and fills. Think seriously about how you apply that in all of the choices that you make for education, for news, for entertainment. What is coming in? Whose table is this coming from? Who is feeding this to me? You need, you need this bread, and you need way more of it. I'm gonna go on a limb and say, you need way more of it than you're getting. You need more and more of it. You need more of it if you and your children are going to stand. You need this manna. You need this heavenly food. And if you are consumed with guilt, and it's driving you crazy, it, it feels like the worst thing in the world that you could possibly do is confess your sins to repent, and to turn to Jesus. That feels like the hardest thing to do. But I want to tell you, it is embarrassingly easy. It is, it is so easy. Not because the sacrifice that Jesus provides is cheap or worthless, but because his grace is so wide that when you confess your sins, he covers it and he restores you and he gives you the peace and the comfort, and the healing, and the wholeness that you can't find anywhere else. Do not allow guilt to drive you crazy. Come to Jesus, confess your sins, repent, and be made whole. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the shepherd king, and we ask you to strengthen us in him. Feed us at his table. Continually feed us with this heavenly food. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.